the best way to cultivate a sensibility of what makes for a good interview is to pre-tape your interviews and set aside large amounts of time to edit them down to half the length they start at. Because it makes you think really critically about where the wasted language is in that interview, when your questions have gone on too long, when your guest has gone off track, what you can fix with editing and what you can't. And it cultivates the ear you need to start listening critically to other people's interviews, to start editing in real time when you're listening to other people's interviews, and then to start editing yourself in real time when you're conducting interviews. Welcome to Radio Survivor, the sound of strong communities. Across the table from me is Eric Klein. He's one of your hosts and producers. Hey, Paul. Your name is Paul Reismandel, and you also <laughs> produce and host this radio program. We got to shake things up here. Well, that surprised me. I was about to drink a cup of coffee, uh, and then it was my turn. <laughs> At least you didn't have to do a spit take. Yeah. Uh, we, we managed to avoid some cheap comedic devices. Here. How you doing, Paul? How's it going? I am uh, doing well. Thanks for very ably uh, taking care of the uh, podcast last week. It was a wonderful uh, show with two two Countum radio station tours that uh, Jennifer uh, shared with us, along with some great audio from those tours. Yeah. They just keep getting better and better. Yeah, isn't that nice? We I hope everyone understood just how exciting it was that here were two radio stations that were so vastly different from one another. They're both college stations, but one's a per- professionally run, right? So they've they've hired a grown-up to run it. The other one is run by a student general manager. One is heard across the state on the AM dial. The other one's mostly heard in the in the dining hall because it's an online streaming station, as I said in the intro to that show. And yet, uh both stations are enthusiastically uh staffed up by by community volunteer DJs uh, that are are there in the same amount, about about 100 DJs at both stations. So Jennifer's point with that contrast was that there there was the same amount of enthusiasm within the college community for for each one, even though one is is an elephant and the other is a bit of a mouse. Hmm. Yeah, and it's great because there's all these approaches, and none of them is right. None of them is the correct one. None of them is the pure way to do it. They each, they're always situated in history. This is a thing I think that that often gets overlooked, and this is true of every radio station, but especially true I think in in a community or college situation because simply you have so many actors. Right Mm -hmm. there, you know, with a college station, you may have uh, 60 new people come in every year and and like 30 leave every year. Same thing in a community station and everyone leaves their imprint. And and the reason why things are away now is often because of a decision made 10, 12, 30 years ago. And sometimes that decision was made in response to circumstances, be it a budget cut or maybe someone did something really terrible that you that that required that things change that sure. you know that, that that caused students to lose some access or sometimes someone did really wonderful yeah. and they said let's replicate this and let's make that more of what we do. And also Jennifer seems to have tapped into a there's there's like a generational shift in the attitude towards college radio hmm. that tends to impact yeah. these things. And so so uh, college students in the late 90s want one thing that college students in the early 80s have a different 
uh, or at least they they're experiencing their radio station differently. Yeah, I think there's often been that generational divide. Uh, It's my perception in the 80s into the early 90s. Sometimes uh, the students doing college radio then had a very more kind of. punk attitude mm-hmm. and often we're a little bit like screw the administration often screw our advisor well, you can't, a very look, oppositional look, kind of look at the uh, movies view. they were watching that's every, exactly every college movie the advisor was the bad guy yeah and i think now it's you know in part because i think that attitude for better or worse because i'm not really condemning it uh may also make the the, the administration go well you know screw you back and take away their funding, you know, and it seems that also though that shift in sort of probably the generation of faculty right. and the generation of administrators means that there's a bit more understanding of the college radio culture, right? So the, it's more likely your advisor may be as punk as you are in many yeah. cases <laughs> yeah, and not, not, not a stodgy kind of pipe smoking, classical music listening, uh, you know, 55 year old man with, uh, yeah. with elbow patches on his jacket, it's a new archetype. Uh, it's a very new archetype. Anyway, so I just that's just my long-winded way. <laughs> if you didn't listen to last week's episode, we we really enjoyed it, and you should go check it out. Yes, and uh, you've brought a great interview for this week. I'm very excited for. Uh, tell us a little bit more about that. Yeah, former colleague, coworker, and friend of mine, Brian Edwards Teekert, is the host and producer of a, a daily. A morning show, an hour of news and public affairs at the KPFA radio station. As we get into on that, uh, and if, as you've heard probably here on Radio Survivor or elsewhere, uh, KPFA is this uh, unique hybrid of uh, community radio. It's very much a community radio station with the with the small and the local and the and the um, the scrappy. But on the other hand, it's a very well funded community radio station, so it has a lot in common with public. Radio well, in that and, and it's much older than most right. public stations and it's the in the first country. One have the I first mentioned community that station? It's been a while since I've probably bragged. And, and the first, that it was the first listener sponsored yeah, station in the yeah. country. It was founded by uh, pacifists in the in the wake of World War II. They were they were tired of not getting their message on the media. They wanted more dialogue. They wanted a chance to uh, to talk to people about more important issues than what was getting on the radio. This is how I understand it. We should yeah. have Matthew Lasara on. Well, to talk right. About I mean, people can me. pick up his book, Pacifica Radio, <laughs> which is the definitive history of. I just the worked network. there for seven years in the early aughts, in the mid aughts. What do I know? You know quite a bit, but I. It's a, I'm I'm looking forward to the interview right. uh, because it's a great opportunity to discuss journalism and public affairs from a community radio standpoint. Um, and a little bit about the balances that that one strikes that might be different at a public radio station, certainly different from a from a commercial radio station, to the extent to which even commercial there's very few commercial uh, radio stations left that do very much in the way of local news. They do exist, but very rarely do they do something like a a, a true morning magazine program in, in a, like Brian does. Um, that's more commonly seen actually in a public or, or community station. So talking over some of the the balances uh, of that, I think, is a really illuminating discussion. So, and I think this is something useful for 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 folks in college radio and for folks in, in community radio and in public radio, because um, you know news is done in all these places. And I think often people forget that college stations do news. It's very common to to have, at the very least, uh, regular news reports throughout the day. 
uh, often and in often news magazines. Some some have yeah. full on news magazines every day. Some have them weekly. And many do reportage because you have journalism schools and you have students who are learning journalism and this gives them the opportunity to practice. And sometimes uh, they don't actually know where to look to for a model or yeah. look to for examples. I, I wanted to have this conversation with Brian Edwards Steaker because the Upfront radio program is hands down uh, my favorite show to listen to, podcast, radio, or otherwise. Uh, it's it's every time I give it the hour um, I'm impressed and I'm well informed. Uh, but yeah, it's um, it's important to note uh, before we go into the interview that uh, Brian and I don't talk about it very much on tape. But he uh, has a number of co- co-workers and colleagues that make his work possible that produce the show with him. And uh, he also has a, a, a handful of co-hosts that we don't talk about on the show. But um, Kat Brooks, Salima Hamarani, and Marie Choi are three names I want to make sure to drop before we start because they are also contributing uh, really great interviews to that program uh, that we're about to hear. I think we should also mention before we jump into the interview that uh, Brian has taken um, an unpaid leave of absence from the program to go to the John S. Knight Journalism Fellowship at Stanford, uh, the JSK Fellowship, which used to be known just as the Knight Fellowship but then they uh, they added those initials on there to to separate it from all those other night fellowships right. out there in America. Right. Well, and I appreciate that you're uh, making sure to give some props to his co-hosts and to the team because any of these things, often there is somebody whose voice is heard more frequently than anyone right. else's, but there's a team back there. Uh, there's a lot of people at work to try and make sure that the whole machine runs and the program is on the air. So so you chose to spoke to speak with Brian. You know him. Uh, you have a relationship with him, right. and he has a lot to share, but it's not because we expect or believe that, that he is the solitary expert in this regard. Yeah, and uh, one other thing I wanted to mention about, about the Upfront Radio program um, in one week, I went and looked this up to to make to make this point. In one week in July, uh, very recently, uh, this is what they had on the radio show. So this was the week of the RNC. So every uh, every uh, episode of the daily program, they had a a live update from the Republican National Convention from a different. A journalist, or at least four different journalists. So a daily report from the RNC. Then they covered the attempted coup in Turkey. They covered an, an additional issue there in the region where uh, Cold War-like tensions seemed to be building. Uh, so was NATO instigating a war with Russia? Uh, another day, they had the Oakland City Council was voting on renter protections. And the Oakland City Council was uh, looking at a citizen oversight issue of the police. They covered those issues. They had an interview with an African feminist, a feminist from Kenya who had authored a book. Uh, They did a a segment on food insecurity among UC Berkeley students. And uh, they also covered homelessness in the Bay Area. And then as well as the last day of the week, they covered what was going to happen next with Trump's uh, convention had concluded. So what comes next in America? as well as a discussion of the anti-boycott, divestment, and sanctions bill, which was coming before the California state legislature. So that week of radio, they had 14 different guests in those five hours of community radio. They had reporters, authors, activists, academics, organizers, and executive directors of uh, local powerful nonprofits. And it was local, like very local Bay Area. It was state 
and it was international and national. Yeah. So, to, uh, so not one at the expense of the other. It sounds like. Yeah. Necessarily. And it represents just a huge amount of uh, work. The work that radio is mm-hmm. to me. Uh, so, so that's why I thought it was important to talk to Brian and, and get into uh, pull back the curtain of how that kind of radio show uh, is approached. Well, let's go to the interview now with Brian Edwards Tinkert. We're joined on the line by Brian Edwards Tinkert. He's KPFA's host and producer for Upfront, the morning show there at KPFA. Uh, but he's on leave currently, uh, doing a JSK fellowship. So, nine months of leave from the radio. Welcome, Brian. Thank you, Eric. How does it feel to not get up in the morning? Well, I, I do get up in the morning. I just get up a little bit later. <laughs> Sometimes I make it all the way past dawn. It's pretty awesome. Um, it, it's amazing. I, I've been on leave for a, a month now to like wrap things up and get moved down to Stanford, which is where I'm doing the fellowship mm-hmm. uh, and getting off the hamster wheel of daily deadlines has been like a mind expanding experience and yeah. a battery charging experience and put that into context for the listeners you were doing uh i mean i know you took vacations as as any grown-up uh, should be entitled to who who creates a daily radio program but you were up front uh up front was on the air for five days a week uh for four years and then uh prior to that you were um filing stories in the newsroom correct so you've been you've been working working the radio deadline yeah, well, and having the Daily Show is very different from being a reporter because, like, if you get given an assignment as a reporter and like somehow crash, can't get the interview you need, lose your audio, whatever, uh, the the anchors, the editors working on the newscast are going to find something else to fill the four minutes they had reserved for you. Right. But when you have to put a whole show on the air every morning. You can't go home till you have the thing locked down for the next day. You know, if something crashes, it just like means your workday gets longer, means my workday gets longer uh, in the kind of shop we are. Um, Right. So that, that, that was like what was most taxing. And this also makes it very hard to make plans outside of work. Yeah. And this show, uh, for people that aren't familiar with Upfront, um, it's this, it's got, it's I was um it's hard to describe because it lives in this world between a sort of community radio that people probably are more familiar with around the country and it's 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 very professional it's it's staffed it's understaffed though from the perspective of 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 other journalism outlets is that a fair way to to put it how would you describe this unique community radio program well i Kind of the same way I would describe KPFA, the the station that houses it, kind of straddles the world of community radio and public radio. Um, we are community radio in the sense that the vast, vast majority of what we put on the air is locally produced. Much of it by volunteers or a mixture of volunteers and paid staff. Um, I say we have a foot in the public radio world because... We are lucky enough to have a really big signal in a very large populated metro area uh, and a long and storied history that's let us work up to uh, what's a really large budget, about three and a half million dollars a year, um, that can support a fairly sizable editorial staff. 
Um, and that means we've been very ambitious about producing daily shows uh, with staffing. The way that's different from most other public radio is that most professionally staffed public radio stations are relying on syndicated content. So they're throwing a lot of resources, but they're throwing it into like eight minute drop ins in morning edition, you know, or producing uh, one one hour call in show that's kind of their local signature show yep. in the middle of the day. Yeah, that was a big. Uh, so you have a much a much bigger team of people working on much less airtime. Yeah, that, that was a big culture shock for me when I left uh, left KPFA in the Bay Area and moved to Portland. That um, that that uh, there was less local radio up here, uh, professionally produced local radio. So it gives you a lot of room for creativity. It also leaves you feeling very overworked and spread thin. Um, and and that's how I would describe the show. You know, we're the show that people wake up to. We expect that people wake up wanting information about not just what's happening in their community, but around the world. So if there's breaking news in the Middle East, we try to cover what's happening in the Middle East. And when there's raging debates at City Hall, we try to cover what's happening at City Hall. Uh, and that all lands on the staff, which was me, a part-time producer, usually an intern or two. Um, and our news editor, Eileen Alfandari, who does the headlines. Right. And so that, that was one of the things I wanted to talk to you about was uh, how you decide what to cover, because I really, um, I really like the mix of, of the local and the, and the international, and I think, it's, I, think it's, uh, I think it's done right. And so can you talk a little bit about that process with, with, uh, with the staff when you, when you figure out what the next day's show is going to be? Yeah, well, we have a daily editorial meeting. Um, our my goal with the meeting has been to get a diverse group of people into the room because people are tuned into uh, different areas. I track economic and environmental issues very closely. Uh, Eileen, our news editor, is also the assignment editor for KPFA's news department, so she's constantly watching local developments, city hall. Uh, what's happening in the local courts, who's calling rallies and press conferences. Uh, my producer, Linda Corey, uh, has an advanced degree in international relations with a focus on the Middle East, uh, extremely tuned into develops in Israel, Palestine, Syria, and so forth. Uh, and then we've been really lucky to have a tremendous succession of interns who've come through. And one of our selection criteria is, are they going to bring things to our editorial meeting that the people who are there already uh, aren't bringing to the table? In other words, do they have non-duplicative life experiences and interests that will expand the expertise that we have in-house? Yeah, that, that sounds um, that sounds ideal uh, when you can pull it off. Uh and so then we have those daily editorial meetings and we're always kind of looking three days ahead. So three days ahead, we want to have an idea of what we want to do for at least half the show, right? Either it's a development we know is coming up, like there are specific days that the Supreme Court releases decisions or election days, you know, a fixed point in time that you can plan for, Um. Or there are issues that we've been wanting to cover, and we know it's going to take a little lead time to do it right, to try to get both sides on or to try to get some field tape to incorporate into it. And it doesn't have to be covered on a one-day turnaround basis. And so if you start the conversation three days out, uh, then you can fill out the show with breaking news the day before. But on a, a breaking one-day turnaround basis, we're only worrying about 
10 to 15 minutes of the show instead of the full hour. Mm-hmm. Right. So you leave space. And, and what kind yeah. of people do you book as guests? How do you approach that question? Well, I guess it depends on the story. I mean, we want people who are good talkers. We want people who are going to give the best argument possible for that position. Uh, we don't want to like set our guests up to fail, even if they're people who I personally might disagree with. Um, or we want people who are directly impacted by a story or an issue. And sometimes that means going to our audience for call-ins, right? Because the, the crowd will be able to contribute more life experiences than any one guest or any round table of guests. Right. Yeah. I wonder if we could use um, a local story as a case, as a, as an example to talk about more in detail. Um, like what's a particular local issue that you've covered uh, in the recent past? Well, I mean, let me give you one example where like our listeners had more valuable experiences to contribute than the guests we could book. So when the Affordable Care Act was being phased in, we were doing a lot of these kind of uh, very public service segments that were targeted at basically just getting the word out uh, that people could get health care. And here's how you do it. And yes, it's confusing. So we would have experts on um, to help, you know, to take calls and help people figure out what they were supposed to be do. We were getting increasingly frustrated calls from people who were doing the right things and still getting the runaround from confused bureaucrats or people who were answering the phone at various agencies, but didn't necessarily know what they were doing. Mm -hmm. Um, And that was really useful because A, it told us that just having experts on, uh, well-intentioned experts on, um, was not getting the whole story and then led to a segment where a listener in San Francisco who'd been having trouble getting enrolled through San Francisco's equivalent of Medicaid. Um, I got on the phone with her while we called the agency that had been giving her a runaround uh, and we did like super customer support. Ah. where we told them we were recording the message and then they called the supervisor and told us you're not allowed to record. And we told them, well, you already told us you're recording, so we can. (laughs) (laughs) Since they were were recording you, why can't? Yeah, Yeah, that's funny. Yeah, I mean, California is a dual party consent state, so you can't record without the uh, other party's permission, but all all bets are off when they've already started recording on their end. Mm. Um, And at any rate... uh, because we were the press, it got it kicked far enough up the food chain uh, that someone who could fix this woman's problems got on the phone with her um, and worked her situation out and apologized and said they would retrain uh, their people on how to handle people in that situation. Um, So I, I felt like that was a very good synergy between the wisdom of the crowd about what they're experiencing uh, and the, the wisdom of the experts. Yeah, that's a that's a good one. You skipped ahead to the the benefit of opening the phones because I think that's a right. that's a unique uh, that's something about about radio that I think is um, uh, it's risky and it's misunderstood and it's sort of where community radio uh, can can win over over public radio. Um, yeah, it can also be deadly boring. Yeah, exactly. Well, let's talk about that then. Let's uh, let's jump to that. Uh, how do you handle that tension between 
between doing having great radio and having terrible radio when you open the phones. So we're like we're a very flexibly formatted show. Um, the the only hard rules about our show is that we take a break for news headlines halfway through the hour, and that we're off at the end of the hour. So one of the decisions we make in the editorial meeting is going to be what's the best format to cover something. You know, uh, are we going to have a journalist on a print journalist who's covering this in great detail to do an explainer? Or are we going to have a debate between two people with contrasting opinions? Or do we think it would just be a shouting match if we got these two people on together that would be hard to make sense of? So we're going to interview them back to back so listeners can hear both sides, but with the host playing intermediary. And then the question with Collins is, is this a topic on which our listeners will be able to contribute based on their own experiences? Right. So what I don't want in a call-in segment um, is a bunch of people, and they're almost always men, uh, who think that their opinions about abstract economic or political issues are very important for everyone to hear. Because I can usually find a guest who is more thoughtful and more articulate. Um, What I want is people who can tell stories about, say, the interactions that they've had with the police in their community. I want people who can tell stories about what it's been like trying to get health care when the Affordable Care Act went into effect in California, and suddenly the health exchanges were up and running. Uh, I want people to call in eyewitness reports when there's a fire at the refinery in Richmond. Uh, I don't want their opinion on the Syrian civil war. Yeah, exactly. Unless they're because in Syria. even though out, out of the 100 people who call in, I might get a Syrian refugee. Uh, that's kind of a diamond in the rough, right? It, it would take take the whole hour to dig through yeah. to get to that call. Possibly more. Possibly more than an hour to find, to find your, one, uh, your one Syrian caller. Um, that's interesting. I'm going to follow a thread now uh, off the, um, the notion of um, what your role is on the air. I hear a lot of... Um, of community journalists, uh, uh, hosts of community stations who um, tend to sound like that caller you just described. Uh, people who think it's their role. And actually, I can think of one prominent radio professional who's uh, not a community journalist. He's, in, he's a well-known professional radio host who who's an expert on everything and tends to book himself as the guest. Uh yeah, well, that's. I mean, you also described commercial talk radio. Exactly. Yeah, that's exactly talk. probably where he's learned it. So that's that's my ignorance of commercial talk radio because I can never, I could not stomach a minute of it. So I don't, I don't actually know how it sounds these days. So how do you see yourself as a host? What's your role? Um. So I, I, I mean, I, I don't want to like crap all over that style because I think there are some commercial talk hosts who are kind of brilliant and and it's really pleasurable just to listen to them holding forth Mm -hmm. on the events of the day and so like that's its own thing but it's not what i do with very rare exceptions sometimes i deliver a, a short soliloquy during the show um i see my what do you soliloquize about okay what is your expertise that you that you're willing to to talk well you know fun drives for us we have our hosts pitch um, often involve my delivering speeches about the value of the radio station. There you go. Um, so you're an expert and, on and the principle of listener supported media. Yeah. Makes sense. Um, 
I've done narrated pieces in the show that are like produced and scripted using field recorded elements. So it's kind of like a, a soliloquy with sound bites. Right. Um, but that's, that's something you reported. Well, that's fair. I mean, I would describe one more as an essay. We, we did this really fun field reporting project where we had a black reporter go into black neighborhoods and collect Vox Pops from people uh, asking them what they told their kids about how to deal with the police wow. and what they were told growing up. And we had a white reporter go into an affluent suburb asking the exact same question. Um, and we edited those Vox Pops together in parallel. Um, and I, you know, that was not like a reported piece. I, I think it was more like a illustrated essay on privilege. Wow. So I'm sorry, I interrupted you. Uh, so what is your role as the host? Well, I think my role is basically to stand in for the audience, right? I want to be asking the questions on their behalf that are going through their heads as they listen to the conversation. Um, so I want to make sure that if someone's getting stuck in jargon, I'm slowing them down and making them explain themselves that if they're avoiding a question or, uh, answering a question with an unrelated soundbite that I'm pinning them down and making them answer that I'm poking for contradictions, hypocrisies, and inconsistencies in arguments that guests are making. Um, and also that I'm, I'm challenging the guest, I'm giving them the room to make their argument. And challenging them enough to make their best argument right. without being an abusive twit who's just shouting them down because I feel threatened by what they're saying. Yeah. And now this this takes me to another interesting fact. I mean, you, you, you know, you work at KPFA, which is a radio station with a distinct uh, point of view. It's an anti-war radio station. We can say that much about it. It's also, uh, you come from... Uh, uh, it's it's fair to say like a, an environmental activist background you have you have that point of view behind you is that can i put that label on you you know i i spent about 6 months working for an environmental justice organization in in an advocacy <laughs> role and uh so but you know you have um you don't approach uh journalism radio journalism as a um as with with the, with objectivity with journalistic objectivity yeah i think i tend to think objectivity is kind of a fallacy yeah. um objectivity is the idea that you don't have a point of view or god forbid um you should let anyone know you might have a point of view there are a lot of ideas that swim in the same world that i think are really useful so fairness is one. Um, I want the positions I don't agree with fairly represented in a segment. That means I reach out to get the other side on. Right. Um, I try to get the best spokesperson for the other side, not the worst caricature of right. the other side. Um, if they won't give us an interview, uh, then I'll ask them for a statement and read it on the air. You know, to, if they won't give us a statement, uh, but they've given a statement to someone else, I'll recite what they told the San Francisco Chronicle. Right. 
I wonder if we can... And, and you know, the, the concept of balance is, is the same. I, I kind of think of it as you don't talk about someone without talking to them on the radio. And it's different from having a and justify the means advocacy agenda. Right. You're, you're more concerned with getting the truth of the story. Uh, I think that serves larger aims of propagating social justice in the world. Yeah, talk about... So ab- I, I don't see t- them as, as mutually inconsistent. I wonder. I want to talk about that more because I think, I think that it's, it's fair to say that there might be... I, don't, I can't pick an issue right now out of my head, but I think having listened to, to your work on Upfront, it's clear that there are issues that you feel passionate about. That, that you're on their side when the guest is in the studio. Um, uh-huh. But you're still uh, uh, you're still asking them difficult questions, questions that they might not have expected from someone who was on their side. And I want to mm. and I want you to talk about why you do that. Well, I think if you don't push people, they don't make their best argument. I mean, I, I think there's nothing more boring than listening to two people who agree with each other talk about how much they agree. So, you know, one one thing is just making it interesting. Um, the other is generally if people are strong advocates, they've encountered uh, strong arguments against their positions and, and probably thought through where they stand in reference to them. And if they haven't, um, they should have. Yeah. So I, I, I try to get it all into the air. Um, it's not always possible for us to get to yes or disagree on at the same time or in the same segment uh you know maybe the logistics and the timing don't just work out so uh, i try to bring that other view in through the the persona of the interviewer then yeah and because because it makes the interview stronger and it you know uh your representation of of the strongest argument against what 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 they're advocating for uh doesn't make what they're advocating for uh less interesting or or seductive like it actually strengthens their argument when they answer right if they have an answer uh it's tragic maybe when they don't have an answer um this brings us to another thing i really wanted to talk to you about which is how do you approach an interview uh how do do you approach the the process of of sitting down in front of microphones and structuring you know first question second question yeah, well, I there's a few things. Um, you know, in the, in the preparation phase, uh, the first and most important thing to do is to get a sense of how the person talks, right? Mm. Is this someone who's going to go on and on and on and on, and I have to get ready to cut them off or keep them on topic? Or is it someone who gives really short, clipped answers, and I'm going to have to draw them out? Mm-hmm. Is it someone who is not accustomed to being interviewed? You know, maybe they're an academic and they're an expert, but they have extreme mic shyness, uh, in which case I have to work at putting them at ease in order to tap the knowledge that is in their brain. Yeah. Or are they someone who is extremely comfortable, who's interviewed great, uh, with great frequency, uh, in which case I can throw harder questions at them and not like shake them up? Uh, then the second thing is like knowledge area preparation. So if I'm interviewing someone about their book, and I don't have time to read the whole book, which often I don't, um, I will at least read the introduction to get a sense of the argument they're making and mm-hmm. the structure of the book. I'll figure out what part of the book I want to drill down on and maybe read that chapter. Then I'll read reviews 
to see where the book is situated in its field, what the criticisms are of the book. Um, and finally, I'll listen to other interviews that people may have done with the same author if they're available online again to get a sense of how that that person talks oh, see now and that's that's an amount of prep that i can usually do uh in about three hours to prepare for a book interview that will leave me sounding pretty on it uh and usually leave them pretty impressed with the level of preparation that's, uh, yeah and that's like and then a, the, a triage time management for for a yeah. low-staffed daily show right exactly um and and there are a lot of shows that like mostly do book interviews where the host never books up the book yeah. so there, there are a lot of authors who are, are relieved to be interviewed by someone with that level of preparation right and, um it may- and the, the final thing is writing the interview out i mean writing an introduction writing questions thinking about the order they're in uh nesting follow-up questions uh and then being ready to throw it all away when you get into the conversation and something interesting comes up, like having the courage to go off script and follow up and, and go down that path. I think of the script as kind of like the safety net for the interview. It's what you go back to when nothing else is working out. Um, but really, the the preparation that goes into writing the script should be aimed at making you capable of having a fluid and interesting conversation with that person. Right. It's interesting because the you mentioned uh, listening to other interviews, and I had a little personal, <laughs> very 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 personal red flag where I would be afraid that I would um, structure my inter. I would ask the same first question. I would try to get the same uh, anecdote told on my interview that I had heard on on the other show. How do you uh-huh. how do you stay how do you stay true to your own interview if if you're listening to how someone else did it? Well, I mean, if it's a great anecdote, there's no reason you shouldn't start with the same one. Mm-hmm. I mean, I I think I, I I have seen people screw themselves up by being too anxious about being completely original in all things. You know what I mean? I think so. I mean, I think I I, I understand I understand that it's it makes sense to to use other people's interviews to prepare for your own. It, I mean, but but what happens to me is also you know after you've done a few interviews you start listening to other people's interviews and you go oh he didn't ask this follow-up he should have here right or uh, they didn't really answer that question the interviewer didn't pin him down or wouldn't it have been interesting to ask this that or the other thing yeah can we can we get into that let's let's hear do you have any tips for beginners people people who um have not sat down in front of microphones with the the same number of people as you have to get the news. Uh Um, I'm especially interested. I think the best, the best way to cultivate a sensibility of what makes for a good interview is to pre-tape your interviews and set aside large amounts of time to edit them down to half the length they start at, Hmm. because it makes you think really critically about where the wasted language is in that interview. When your questions have gone on too long, when your guest has gone off track, what you can fix with editing and what you can't. And it, it cultivates the ear you need to start listening critically to other people's interviews, to start editing in real time when you're listening to other people's interviews, and then to start editing yourself in real time when you're conducting interviews. Yeah, that makes sense. Listen to yourself. Uh, 
listen to yourself twice if you have the time. Edit yourself. And I'm serious. Like, the, you know, people think I just had this great conversation with this wonderful person, um, which is almost certainly true. And they're very starry eyed about it. And they want to keep every minute of it intact and put it on the air. If you cut it down to half the length it was, it will be better. Yeah, that's a real. It will be an enormous, painful amount of work, but it will be better. And the process of doing it, of making all those minute editorial decisions about what can stay and what can go, will make you a better interviewer. Yeah, no, you're right. That's funny because uh, I'm getting personal again, but the the difference between podcasting and radio is that you you're not getting paid to podcast, and so and you can you can let go of the the clock. And so that's that's something that I have not. Uh, I mean, I definitely edit uh, ed- interviews for for Radio Survivor down, but uh, not with such a um, deadly precision as was necessary when they were airing on the radio. Yeah, I mean, I would say so. When I first started hosting the the, mor- the old morning show at KPFA, most of our interviews were live, and so the first way I learned discipline was that there was a clock in front of me. Yeah, right? I had a fixed amount of time twenty one minutes for the interview. I had a list of questions that I wanted to get to, uh, and then when I was realizing that the answers were going long. I was kind of having to triage those questions, figuring out whether I could follow up or not. So that imposes a different kind of discipline. But I, I think I have learned much more uh, from those instances when I have had the luxury of time to do intense editing on my own interviews. Yeah. But on one of those two routes, I think you have to start imposing some kind of discipline on yourself because you want to make it a really interesting conversation, right? Um People don't just want to hear you go on and on and on. They want to hear you get somewhere. Yeah, let's. Um, uh, so I'd like to talk more about that. It's kind of hard. I didn't. Uh, I didn't prepare a a a specific example. So we're gonna have to we're gonna have to root around in our memories for a, a way a way that you approach an interview with a certain kind of guest because different guests are different as you just as you just mentioned. Um, you know, I, I'm I think I'm a lot more interested in in what it means to be um, a journalist, I guess, a reporter. Like, you're not just having an entertaining conversation, but you're digging for information and you're getting information for the listener that wasn't available uh, prior to the interview. Like, getting that interview out into the world is how that information now uh, becomes public. Right, that's right of- but it's, it's, it's more than just a reporter interview. Because like a reporter interview, you're literally mining, right? You're going to use sound bites that are no longer than 30 seconds. So you can ask the same question six different ways until you get uh, an answer that's interesting mm-hmm. or sound bitey. But for an interview format show, the interview is the final project, right? So the interview itself has to have a narrative arc. It has to tell a story. It's going to be good if it has a reveal in it towards the end. Right. If you build up questions in your listener's mind, hold forth the promise of answering them, and then don't deliver the answers till later in the interview. So there's all these kind of narrative considerations about how you structure an interview that's going to broadcast as an interview, rather than how you conduct an interview for reporting purposes. Wow. Can can you get specific? Can you remember something specific where you've where you've built towards that reveal? Well, you know. Uh, a lot of people's books build up towards a review. So you can try to follow the narrative structure of the book. Um, 
Well, let me let me give you an example. So there's this huge police scandal that broke in Oakland in our signal area a couple of months ago. Uh, it's broken by two reporters at the East Bay Express, Ali Winston and Darwin Pond Graham, uh, who had gotten a young sex worker to go on the record about the dozens of police in several different agencies who had trafficked her when she was a minor, uh, committed statutory rape with her, tipped her about police raids so as to protect her about them uh, in exchange for sex. And this led to uh, the rapid uh, replacement of three police chiefs in the city of Oakland. Uh, I think there was a headline this week that there was just disciplinary action against 14 more members of the Oakland Police Department. Right. This took place uh, an open uh, question. mostly in, in the, I mean, not mostly, this broke in, was it June of 2016? But it's still ongoing. I believe so. And it's impacting the police departments in other cities, at least one federal agency. Um, It may trickle up to the prosecutor's office. At any rate, um, the most interesting thing to me about the story was there was one police source that they quoted who was a retired police officer who'd been in a sexual relationship uh, with this young sex worker. And he was the only person whose name they knew, had confirmed, and chose not to use in their story. Mm-hmm. And that was the question I held towards the end, to ask them why they hadn't done it. Right, when you, know, you, they when you interviewed the journalists themselves. because you Right, you, they hadn't promised him any anonymity. They were under no professional obligation to keep his name out of the story. They had identified him and then confronted him and he confirmed and then said, please don't give my name out, which Didn't like, he, you know, there's, I think there's, there's said no Baxi's rule. I think he said he, he had a illness and feared that the stress uh, would kill him. Oh, you read the story. So that's what they wrote in the story. Yeah. <laughs> um, but it turns out that yeah, was the not story. the reason that was not the reason that they kept his name out of there. Cause it's not actually their job uh, to keep him from having a heart attack. Um, it was because they said they did not think there was anything wrong with sex between consenting adults, even for money, uh, which is the nature of the relationship between this man who was a retired police officer the entire time he was involved with this young prostitute. Uh, and, and her, she was of age when she was in a relationship with him. And that they thought, criminalizing sex work was part of the problem that let police enter into predatory relationships with sex workers and and what amounted to like a protection racket right was was what she was involved with with several police officers so it built out to what i thought was this very interesting moral and philosophical question um underlying the entire story yeah and something that and, they hadn't explicitly stated in the story i mean it's right. sort of obvious if you read between the lines that they did not that they weren't um as you know as journalists often have in our culture like blaming the sex worker or shaming the sex worker for for their life like they were clearly not of that ilk right so i thought like that was that was a reveal about their reporting methods and and the philosophy that went into the story that would have been very anticlimactic if it had come earlier in the interview. Hmm. But 
a really interesting note to end on, right? Because it, it brought this kind of very local specific story out to its broader implications uh, about how we treat legally, how we treat sex work and what its consequences are. Yeah. And now, uh, now that you've brought up that example, uh, what did you do like the second time you covered that story? Cause it's an ongoing, uh, enormously important local story. And I know that upfront, um, has done a number of segments uh, with different guests. So like what, what comes next for covering this giant story, uh, on the radio show? Well, you know, I was wrapping up to leave for the fellowship I'm on, so I did not do follow-up coverage. The news department started sending out reporters on that story, uh, particularly when they started getting official reaction. But we were unsuccessful in the immediate aftermath of it in getting one-on-one interviews with the mayor or any representative of any of the impacted police departments. So that that's where I would have wanted to go next. Right. Brian, what else would you tell a community radio uh, uh, producer, someone who's hosting a news and public affairs program? What other advice would you offer? You know, I think like one of the biggest uh, pitfalls that comes up a lot in community radio is any topic can start sounding very inside baseball-y or parochial. And it's usually because the host is very interested in and knowledgeable about the subject they are covering. They're not keeping track of whether or not they're leaving the audience behind. Yeah. So one thing I'm always very conscious of, you know, KPFA has this big signal in this very fragmented region. The Bay Area has over a hundred different cities in it. So there's no such thing as covering City Hall, right? What is City Hall? Uh, San Francisco is the most iconic city. It's not actually the biggest one. That's San Jose. Uh, Oakland is a close third, but there are important fights on different policy issues happening in Richmond, which has the largest refinery in the area. It's like this environmental justice hotspot uh, over rent control on the island of Alameda, over regulation of the tech industry in smaller cities like Palo Alto, where I'm based now. So, at any rate, I, I guess my point is we're always looking for, and I think this is where the magic happens, how you find the universal in the local, mm-hmm. how you find the aspect of a local story that will make it interesting to someone who is not from the town that you're reporting on. So this story about the sex trafficking scandal that was swallowing the Oakland police department when we covered it becomes universally useful when it becomes a narrative, right? When it's a story with a narrative arc and when it builds out to more profound questions, like what are the consequences of criminalizing sex work? If it's just an inside baseball interview about who's up and who's down in city politics as a consequence of the scandal, taking down the leadership of the police department, it's of much more limited interest. So those are, I think, like important framing questions to ask yourself going into an interview. And it's a question that like constantly comes up in our editorial meeting. Why should someone outside of the city care about this issue? Or how can we make someone outside of this city care about this issue? Um, and when you think about it, the, the fights that happen at a local level in politics happen in other communities around the country, whether that is uh, predatory racist policing 
whether that is uh, crises of affordable housing, whether that is deindustrialization and jobs dislocation, um, environmental pollution. So you have to figure out what aspect of that local story is shared by people in other communities. Call that out, put that front and center in your framing, and then you can carry the audience with you. I guess like the warning flags are when you catch yourself dropping a lot of names of local officials in a small town without explaining who they are, you've gone the inside baseball route. When you're talking about issues, you've gone the universal route. Right. Well, Brian, thank you so much for spending this time with Radio Survivor tonight. I really appreciate it. Well, hey, you know, thank you for uh, producing Radio Survivor. I subscribe to the podcast. I like the podcast. I'm glad that the podcast exists and I hope it grows. Hey, thank you. Eric, thanks for that interview with Brian Edwards Teekert, and he hosts Upfront on KPFA Radio. Yeah, or we should say he did host he did, because right. he's, he's taking, currently he's on taking leave. a leave. And so Cat uh, Brooks and Selena Hamarani are hosting it at the moment. And folks can uh, find that at the KPF website, which I think is kpfa.org. Yeah. We'll have a link to the show notes. I mean, I would recommend anyone who enjoyed this interview that they definitely go ahead and listen to those archives uh, we'll have links to some of the episodes that Brian uh, na- name dropped or episode uh, title dropped uh, there. We'll have those in the show notes. But but listen to today's episode of Upfront with with Cat Brooks and Selena Hamarani um, because it's a great show. Yes, and I, I appreciate that he's a listener. <laughs> that's yeah. nice to hear. Uh, that's not why we interviewed him. We're not trying to just set people up. <laughs> It, <laughs> who are listeners already. You know, sometimes it, this is not the first time that friends of ours who like our podcast have also had interesting things to tell us. And then some point in the podcast, they butter us up and tell us that <laughs> they've, they've heard what we've done. And we're like, oh, how how nice. Well, you know, geez, you not- covered a lot of great territory there. And and it is. And, and you did cover the fact that, that KPFA and this show sits at a very unique space in radio. Right, that there's aspects where it's where it's like public radio, which we which we often I think associate with more professionalism mm-hmm. and with uh, having greater budgets. You know, the ability to have several staff members for a single hour of radio every day, where often community radio stations that are able to have a news or public affairs director often they're responsible for many, many more hours, and often it's, it's, it's staffed by volunteers. And volunteers can do a great job, but by the very nature of it, they're often limited in the amount of time that they can spend. Whereas you're, you're a full-time professional, it sounds like that Brian is spending at least 40 hours a week, probably yeah. very often more, no, on more, his yeah. part of it for one hour daily of radio, and he's working with his uh, producer, he's working with other co-hosts, he's probably working with other uh, journalists who, right. who either whether they're stringers or whether they're full-time at KPFA who are all contributing to this. There's a, quite interns. a bit that goes into that. Yeah, in- interns. Yeah, and you know we've talked about that tension. It's a fascinating issue for, for radio um, because I believe really strongly that volunteerism and the open-door policy for community radio – is is one of its main strengths and yet if you don't pay people to do the work that is required to make the radio then how do the most important people uh, the people who who can afford to give you six hours the least Mm -hmm. because they literally have to pay the rent 
those are the voices that you lose and those are the most important voices that you need to have on your community radio station it's a it's a fascinating paradox i don't have the answer you know sabrina roach uh yeah on our program tried to help us with some of those answers in a you know, previous episode and i think though that there was uh there was a part of that discussion you had with brian where you talked about to t- call in right and I think that that is perhaps starts is a lead that we can follow. Mm-hmm. Um, and they don't do a lot of call in and upfront, but they do some. And and he said what he's looking for is the the caller who has firsthand experience, right? So not the fifty year old white guy with a hot take on Syria or a hot take on Palestine, right? Who wants to just blatter on about issues? I I would just say with an opinion. <laughs> not just the guy with an opinion. Yeah, not just the guy with an opinion, but somebody with some firsthand experience. Yeah. So I think there's a way in which the guy with a story, right? Or lady. Uh, yeah, the person. The person in which a community station and a host and perhaps a paid staff member or a part-time staff member or a volunteer who who where the station is able to give some level if not compensation help them do this stuff uh, can become the moderator the conduit can become the medium through which these stories can be directed on air mm-hmm. and i mean that 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 takes more work than just simply giving your opinions about you know global conflict or or other issues but is also, I think, perhaps that halfway point between having to have a full-time host or a full-time producer for all of this, which, which frankly, just is just outside of the financial sure. capabilities of, of, of the vast majority of community stations. But, but having someone be, be the conduit – because I think this is something a volunteer can do if they have help, if they have help with and, – and it could be from other volunteers with the booking, help with coming up with ideas. And, and then if, if their, their job is to conduct that interview, and maybe the interview doesn't have to be a half hour. It could be five, ten minutes. It could be live. It can be can be paired with call-in mm-hmm. where the call-in has that similar focus, where the call-ins are questions that are informed or if not informed or at least coming from a place of genuine inquiry rather than, question, rather than, than opinions right. that are phrased as a question. Yeah, well, one of the secrets or I guess uh, uh, other elements of that that we didn't discuss in this interview is the line producer. Uh, it's, right. it's a wonderful thing when your radio station has a person who's dedicated to answering that call uh, prior to it going on the radio, talking to that person and getting a feel for who they are and what they're about to say, and hopefully – uh, put them on hold and talk to the next person right. and put them on hold and talk to the next person which, which, and put which them is on a luxury, hold and talk to the next person. And then when you find the person who really doesn't just want to to give their opinion but has a story that matters to the topic, that's the yeah. person you put on hold. And first. that's a luxury and also it's also a function of your audience size. Yeah. You know, when if you are broadcasting to a metro of a million, it's different than when you're broadcasting to a metro of twenty thousand. Yeah. There's just simply going to be more people trying to get on the air who are there. And then that's a case in which sometimes you have to seed it. You know, you literally have to go out and maybe arrange these things in advance. And I don't think there's anything wrong with it as long as you're not lying to anybody. Um sure. but I think you know what this the words that come to my mind listening to this discussion to some extent, especially the first half, is citizen journalism. Right. And, and it's sort of an idea, I think, that, that continues to have currency, but was very, had a lot of currency uh, going back about 16 years, right? Yeah. In, in, 
in the the first wave of sort of internet media before social media had become uh, predominant uh, in, in that first in in those days following the WTO protests in 1999 that that that, that locked down Seattle right um, where the independent media center movement was was born who who sort of raison d'etre was to use the new tools of capital of the internet of you know at the time camcorders uh, audio recorders right because people have smartphones and then going to to be able to spread uh, the voices of people doing things experiencing things on the ground right we didn't even have usb cables for those cameras folks right (laughs) this is a this is an episode of radio survivor that we owe the listeners the indie media episode i guess we do history but you know but there was this you know before there was a youtube the idea that anyone could just write anything they want you know could post video post audio easily required a lot of work and a lot of volunteers around the globe did that work to create these sites and made them still exist. Uh, go to IndyMedia, I-N-D-Y-M-E-D-I-A dot O-R-G so that there could be good citizen journalism. And I think some of the lessons of that, I mean, some of the, much of it like was sucked up by YouTube and Twitter and, and Periscope because they become platforms that uh, work for distributing this as well as distributing plenty of other things. Um, but it doesn't take away the idea of that first-person narrative, that that is legitimate, that reporting on something you are experiencing rather than having to have a supposed objective third-party reporting on it for you – um, that is still legitimate. And I think that, that community radio stations, community radio journalists uh, can be that medium, can be the, the – can be the – can help. So it isn't that the, the, the person who is sharing their experience has the obligation of filling an hour of airtime every week or every day but can be called upon or knows they have that – conduit that they can turn to to share that story and often right folks are doing this they do it on twitter they do it on periscope they do it on facebook live they do it on snapchat but radio is yet another extension and i wonder if there isn't a way in which uh a community radio newsroom however you construe it or a college radio newsroom or 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 really a public radio newsroom can't kind of go and look to twitter and look to social media to cultivate, find and cultivate those people already kind of doing it in their communities mm-hmm. and offering them this additional conduit where they can have the five minutes on the morning or evening show. And it, it can be it can be sort of bookended, right? It can be framed. But I, I just wonder. It's a, it's a question. It just occurs to me listening to this because I think – you know, making the most of that of the callers, making the most of that. In addition, obviously, they can they can be brought on as interviews, and, and you know, and there's there's a real value to open line, but you know, taking into account and uh, the ways that that privilege works and people who who have privilege work, and that often there, you know, it's it's the same thing that happens. I think often now you see it in conferences, you see it in in sort of public fora where you know we open it now to questions and six you know hands go up and they're all white, right? And it's all you dudes. know, right? It's all dudes, you know, and and so just merely opening the lines, just merely opening the phones is not enough. It it takes a little bit of that correcting 
for these historical patterns uh, where certain folks are, you know, myself being one of those people, uh, one uh, that class and, and gender and race of people who are accustomed to thinking we have the ability to raise our hands and be heard at any time and to instead direct the the open door yeah. and 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 let some folks come up to the front my experience back in back at kpfa when i had uh the opportunity to open the phones was that uh the fifth caller was, yeah <laughs> was the woman with a story that i was looking for and sometimes we could uh speed that process up you know yeah <laughs> uh, take that first i mean i hate to admit it but one of my secrets was that's the first person that called the person who had the number memorized. That person uh, really had to to convince me that 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 they should go on the radio because uh, usually I knew their name mm-hmm. and I had already spoken with them in the past. And uh, it was rare. It was rare that uh, that that was the voice I was looking for. Uh, right when we opened the phone, because you might actually have to go out and cultivate that channel rather sure, than just simply opening the phones or, or, or yeah, uh, just, you know, or move the first editor. four people yeah. out of the way sooner right. so that the 36 minutes that you have to talk to people, you actually, uh, start with the, with the shy people or get them on, uh, soon. The other thing making them wait to the end. That was interesting to me, of course, is, is that mix of local national, international news. And I appreciated Brian's discussion about, Making those local stories, especially when you cover such a big uh, metropolitan area, making that story from Richmond feel uh, like it it applies, like it makes sense. It has some overarching uh, meaning to somebody who lives in Berkeley or San Francisco. Yeah, or, or Portland. Or Portland, as the yeah. case may be. And one of the hard parts I think that that community radio stations again run into very often, especially smaller ones who that want to do public affairs and have public affairs programming, is it becomes difficult to do local stories because it's hard to have the eyes and the ears on the ground. It's easier, and you see this in so many community radio schedules or hear the hear it, and it's in college radio schedules even. You hear lots of talk about global affairs, right? And and global politics or national politics. The presidential election. Exactly. Because it's easy to know about that because there's a fair amount of reportage, even a fair amount of uh, critical and more grassroots or less corporate reportage that you can turn to about that because you, you know, in community radio, you can probably turn to the nation. You can turn to uh, the progressive. You can turn to Mother Jones. You can turn to lots of other uh, sources that will sort of uh, dig up some of the facts that you may not get from the New York Times or the Washington Post or CNN. But for your local area, you often don't have that other resource. You You, have to become that resource. There might not be a paid journalist at your school board meeting right where your radio station is the chances are there is not there has not been a paid journalist at the school board meeting for a long time Uh, but that's where the value of but your station it may not have the resource either to send somebody there and right so i mean so and and i'm not and and it's understandable it just simply the, the the money may not exist and the people who could do so may not have the time but yet there are people who go to those school board meetings yeah they usually have a bone to pick Sometimes, but not always, uh-huh. right? I mean, I think there's a broad spectrum of people 
And it's always to be the same person. And so I think that thinking about this, again, taking this idea of citizen journalism, mm-hmm. of saying, well, so let's see if we can't cultivate reporters ostensibly in our community who don't have to be professional reporters, who don't have to be even trained journalists in a certain way, but who are reasonably articulate and able to report back on what they've experienced. Yeah, it's a dream. They could be I- first person in a way. And – you know, because you hear it, like you know, you hear it even in like, um, in like, in like commercial radio, talk radio. Uh, so not not the sort of uh, national sorts of shows, but there's still like local talk radio in a lot of cities where it'll be an afternoon shows, and there's regular callers, right? And sometimes it's just BS, meaning you know, talk about entertainment, they talk about whatever, and you get the regular callers. So imagine if you had the regular caller who just happens to be the woman who goes to a lot of school board meetings. Or the regular caller happens to be uh, who happens to go to a lot of city council meetings, you know, and so you know you're not going to get quite the same narrative as you would from uh, a professional reporter, sort of steeped in the norms of journalism, who's going to write it up. But you can also, if you, I think, frame it right, you can also make sure people understand this is what yeah. they're getting. In my what in the the in the world that you are describing, the next step in my mind is that that opinionated person offers their report on what just happened in this meeting. And then the phone rings at your station and somebody is upset because they disagree. Well, now you have the, uh, now you have another person. Now you have who, a discussion. Yeah. And you to find out, put that on the air, but you could, you could right. dig that. You can drill that person for information, right. take notes, uh, ask for their email and their phone number. And uh, if their opposing point of view is valid, uh, you should probably make sure that right. that gets on the air the next do time Do they well. disagree on fact or do they disagree in opinion, right? Were they there and they said, well, no, that didn't happen, right? Or, you know, et cetera, right? You can begin to develop that up. And I think it was important, and this is uh, crucially important, I think, for community radio. And it's definitely part of the Pacifica um, history and legacy is to to make sure to have people on you don't agree with and to be willing to have them make their best arguments. So you get that person who calls and they disagree. So it's not a matter of just simply challenging them, but challenging them to make their best argument to allow them and to enable this person to articulate what they're thinking in a way where maybe it, it helps to sort out something that might engender more agreement rather than more disagreement because there's a there's a there's a buried point in there and it's hard to do but one can learn the skills and i think uh, uh, many community radio hosts do their shows for decades over the course of years doing it even just an hour a week you can you will develop these skills you can have an opportunity to develop these skills i think it is something though that that is bigger than a single host very often it's about uh, many hosts working together in some ways. And in and, and many cases in community radio, college radio, uh, shows are very atomic, right? Hosts are very atomic. They come, they do their thing, they go home. Atomic. Yeah, like atomic. They're, they're insulated. They're, right, not even insulated. They're just their own little engine, yeah. right? But they, there's, not, there's not a lot of molecules developing. Um, and if you could find a way to for hosts, uh, maybe of different shows, working together a little bit more, sharing a little bit of expertise and experience, you might come up with uh, you might come up with something that ultimately is better, and and, and especially it can be an environment. And this is tough, believe me, I understand. It's tough to kind of create <laughs> None of this where easy. there can be where there can be uh, you know constructive criticism, where where folks can 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 provide 
to each other. So not, not a matter of there's necessarily a, a, a public affairs director, though many cases there are necessarily a news director, but even from show to show that folks could get together and say, you know, I really liked the interview you did. I, I, I wish you'd ask this question. Yeah, at the very least, wouldn't it be useful if it was baked into the culture of your station that you listened to each other's shows mm-hmm. and perhaps there should be and, a and it's tough like it's taking steps forward it's yeah. always and 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 what i'm always looking for is what is the one little step that that one host or a few hosts can take to move forward understanding that it's great if the station can come together and have the resources to but that often it's difficult especially at stations where you're still worrying about paying the rent or paying the tower fees etc but it doesn't mean you can't kind of move things forward. And it doesn't mean, therefore, I don't want people to listen to this interview and say, well, we're not KPFA. We don't have $3 million and we don't have the ability to have you know, a couple of full-time staff doing a one-hour program. So we can't learn anything from this. Instead, the kind of – that's why I'm trying to sort of pick through these mm-hmm. insights to try and say, well, what are things – that that might be applicable. It's sort of saying, you know, I can't, uh, you know, learn anything from Albert Einstein because I'm not a, a, a physics genius, right? Or I can't learn anything from oh, from some other great sure. legacy. I mean, it's. I think that when you have, if you have an hour of radio on a community radio station, and if you have two to three hours to devote to preparation for that hour of radio, uh, your hour of radio can sound just as good as the the radio we've been discussing. Yeah. And, and, and if you don't I, have that much time, you can still learn one thing. Well, right. And then I think it's always having done work. that. I mean, I did a half hour public affairs radio show called Media Geek about, you know, it helps oftentimes to have, uh, you know, if you can't do sort of magazine format and cover all news to be able to focus in on a particular subject or topic area. Mm-hmm. Right. And so I was talking about uh, roughly communications democracy. So it's policy, it's gra- but with a focus on the grassroots, right? Huh. So it's a precursor to this show. Yes, it is. Um, and so certainly I was covering and talking about things at the, at, the, at the federal level, the FCC, Congress. Also would try to talk to, you know, but then choose guests of people doing interesting things in my own backyard and find people who, you know, looking for people who could uh, talk about them somewhat articulately, right? And I, I don't, it was not a show on, on par with, with uh, you know, with Upfront, okay? It was also only a half an hour. But in most weeks, I could put something together. And mm-hmm. some weeks, I could spend the three hours or four or five or six. And some weeks, I couldn't. And so it varied more week to week, which is, I think, what you see often in community radio. And I'm not saying it was a great program, but ultimately about 12 stations across the country carried it, you know, um, because it was there every week. Issues people could agree, could could not agree with, but but, uh, could care about. It made sense. And, of course, it was available every week. And, you know, there's a consistency counts for a lot often. Um, And you're giving it away for free. Huh? And who's giving away for free? Yeah, for community radio stations, that's going to be pretty important there too if you want to syndicate. But, you know, and then when I talk to people locally in Champaign, Urbana, Illinois, where I did it, I try to make sure to ask questions and create exactly that context that, that, that Brian talked about. Is that how does this make sense to somebody who doesn't live here? Mm-hmm. So we talked about uh, folks uh, trying to create a community broadband network in Champaign-Urbana. How is that important to someone who lived in Knoxville or who lived in Sackville, uh, Nova Scotia, uh, or New Brunswick? I'm mm-hmm. sorry, I'm screwing up where, where what, what province they're coming uh, they for are you. In. Yeah, they're going to catch um, your mistake. 
you know, uh, and, and to make, to make it relatable because certainly folks in Champaign-Urbana were more accessible to me, especially when it came to in studio, uh, and harder to do the, you know, I definitely could do phone interviews and such, but a lot harder to pull off in many cases because I didn't have a producer most of the time. I was often doing it on my own. So, you know, I think that the, and, and, and the thing is, is, is obviously I got better at it year four and five than I was at year one. So, that's why so much of what Brian was talking about resonated with me and I was really glad to hear him talk about it because as, as an active pr- practitioner is able to really kind of uh, state it in, in very, very uh, concise ways and penetrating ways. So I really appreciate that. And we want to know. I mean, so I mean, there's got to be folks here listening to the show who are creating their own podcasts, creating their own radio shows, who are on the radio or trying to help people make radio in community radio, in public radio. Um in, in college radio, what do you think? Uh, we threw a lot of stuff at you here uh, in, in so far in the last hour or so, both what, what we heard from uh, Brian and what we've talked about here. We'd love to hear from you. And, and look, we'd love to have you on the air. If you've got opinions, if you can report on some what you think are some great shows or some best practices, people you think are really making uh, great radio, or if you think you're doing something that, that deserves some attention, let us know. Send us an email, podcast at radiosurvivor.com. We'd love to have you on the show, or if you want to file kind of an audiogram for us, record something on your smartphone or in your studio, uh, we'd love to hear from you too. Uh, we'd like to open it up and have more voices. Um, you know, so, you know, I made, we, we gave some prescriptions and uh, we, we have a difficult enough time following them ourselves here i i'm just joking i'm I'm smiling i'm laughing because uh we're gonna open the phones uh here we are radio survivor we're gonna open the phones the the number to call to to tell us your opinion is to email you have to email us podcast at radio survivor.com i mean you could tweet us at radio survivor uh i think we're pretty easy to get a hold of we do hear from listeners um you know we know that uh we've heard uh I'll, i'll actually give a couple of shout outs we've heard that the show is now being carried on WMN. BLP in North Adams, Massachusetts. Hello, North Adams, Massachusetts. Uh, they said they've been airing some of it. Uh, we really appreciate all of that. Also, we know that we are uh, we are also on a carrier current AM station. Oh boy! Hosted by Boomer the Dog, he's one of our uh, loyal listeners uh-huh. who uh, runs his own carrier current AM station in his house, but that also broadcasts a little bit around his neighborhood. Hello, Boomer the Dog's neighborhood. <laughs> So, you know, it's, it's it's great to hear that. And, uh, you know, we don't yet have the show at this sort of, as I mentioned, consistent where it's always a, a digestible half hour or hour. We'd love to get to that point. And if you can help us out with that, we uh, it's just it's time and money. Uh, that's all yeah. it is. Go to radiosurvivor.com slash support to help us out in that endeavor because we, we like to think that this show would be of interest to people in more stations and in more audiences. Um, and grow this sort of conversation about what makes for great radio and podcasting. I don't think it's too meta, and I don't think it's too inside baseball. Um, I think there are people who love community radio and college radio who would love to hear more about it. And also, uh, we want to give uh, one more uh, kind of a shout here, but uh, the Free Music Archive. How I love the Free Music Archive. Interview number one. That's what, how much I love it. It was when we were talking about doing a a podcast about the internet and the radio and how uh, how much we care about them. Uh, f- talking to the people at Free Music Archive was was my first 
and most exciting idea? Yeah, we talked with uh, Cheyenne Holman from the Free Music Archive on episode number one. The Free Music Archive does great work in curating a collection of music, principally from independent artists, uh, that is available on the internet for free and often available uh, for uh, use yeah. in, in Creative Commons applications music like podcasts. That, music that you can listen to without stealing, mm-hmm. that you can download without violating the agreement, the tacit agreement, the legal agreement with the artist. And then depending on the license that you can use for all sorts of different uses once you study a little bit of uh uh, information that they have right there on their website. They even wrote up uh, how you can go about using this music if you take the time to click around on the Free Music Archive. And then, of course, that 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 website, Free Music Archive, is um, is housed within the the bosom of WFMU, and so a lot of the that's a community radio station, in a, Jersey City, New Jersey. A lot of the uh, live performances at WFMU, which are world class end up there on the Free Music Archive. And I know that they have relationships with radio stations around the country uh, putting up those live performances. So uh, KBU is one of those radio stations that I know uploads some of their live performances to the Free Music Archive. A very special uh, chunk of our radio world is, yeah. is housed and there. And it's curated, which means that um, – it's not just kind of anything that it's not anyone, YouTube. right? It's not YouTube and it's not YouTube, not just in the sense of like, you know, more minutes are uploaded every minute than could ever be listened to, but also that they take time to make sure things are findable. Things are well categorized that, and that that's not a small task, by the way, it's not simple. I mean, it's essentially librarianship and arc and, and being archivists to make sure that, that not only is this music available, but that it's well curated and well, uh, basically, uh, preserved, preserved for, for longer. Yeah. So not only do we love free music archive, but we're bringing them up for a reason. Yep. Because they are uh, having a fundraiser. Uh, they said they're losing $60,000 in support in the next year. So they're looking for the community to come help them out. So they're doing a fundraiser, which you can learn about at freemusicarchive.org slash donate. They're doing the, the fundraiser runs through October 15th. So see if you can't find a way to help them out a uh, little donation, spread the word to help out the free music archive. They do great work that helps radio because in fact, it's, it's something which uh, stations don't need to pay royalties on it. They play. It helps right. podcasting. We, because play, podcasts, we play music that we get off the free music indeed, archive. Podcasts can't play music, uh, regular old sort of CDs and, and typical uh, popular music of any kind without getting explicit permission from the artist and whoever owns the copyright. Uh, whereas you can, you can create hours and hours of great music podcasts with uh, the free music archive. Yeah. Uh, without any of those uh, problems. So they do a lot to really help uh, further the goals of community radio and community podcasting. So go to freemusicarchive.org slash donate. Here, here. Well, thanks, Eric. I think we're, uh, we've come to the end of the show. Thank everyone who has listened to the show, who downloads and subscribes. And when you do subscribe, we really appreciate it. In whatever app you use, whether it's Overcast or, or Stitcher or Pocket Cast or just the podcast app in, in iOS, because it means you always get the show and you won't forget about it. And if you can leave a review um, at iTunes, at Stitcher, or again, any place that you can, we really appreciate it because it does help kind of bubble us up and helps people uh, find the show. 
uh, anything you can do to help out. We do really appreciate it, but of course, we really appreciate that you're listening. Yeah, thank you very much, everybody. Thank you. <laughs>